Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Shiva Mozavarian, Programs Promotion and Outreach Manager at the National Psoriasis Foundation. And in our last CAPES episode, we spoke about pain and fatigue. Today, for the third topic in the CAPES series, we're addressing treatment options for psoriatic arthritis and axial spondyloarthritis. Joining me for this discussion about treatment is renowned rheumatologist Dr. Atul Diodar and offering their perspectives of patients, John Latella and Roz Tolliver. Dr. Diodar is a professor of medicine and medical director of rheumatology clinics in the Division of Arthritis and Rheumatic Diseases at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. He is past chair of Spartan, Spondyl Arthritis Research and Treatment Network, and serves on the steering committee of GRAPA, Group for the Research and Assessment of Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis. His research interests are axial spondyloarthritis and psoriatic arthritis, where he has served as either a principal or co-investigator in more than 100 clinical trials, mostly focused on therapies for ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, or rheumatoid arthritis. Joining Dr. Diodar is John, who in 1976 was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, and cervical spondylitis. John receives his treatment from the Veterans Administration and has tried just about every treatment available to help control both his psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. As a patient advocate for the National Psoriasis Foundation, he helps many patients who struggle with managing their psoriatic disease. Also joining us is Roz, who has lived with ankylosing spondyloarthritis for decades and is a group leader for the Spondylitis Association of America, or SAA, in California. Many members of her family also have forms of spondyloarthritis. And just like John, she's tried a variety of treatments, including joint surgeries through the years, before finding one that really works. We'll hear more about their perspectives on treatment options soon. This episode is being brought to you by CAPES, Clinical and Patient Education Series, a joint collaboration with the National Psoriasis Foundation, GRAPA, or Group for Research and Assessment of Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis, Spartan, Spondyloarthritis Research and Treatment Network, and the Spondylitis Association of America. This collaboration is intended to increase awareness about the management of psoriatic arthritis and axial spondyloarthritis. Episodes will address why it occurs, management of pain and fatigue, treatment options, and the role of diet and exercise. From time to time, MPF shares sponsored content that we think is of benefit to those with psoriatic disease. MPF encourages everyone living with psoriatic disease to work with their healthcare providers to find an appropriate treatment for them. MPF does not offer medical advice, and this podcast should not be considered an endorsement for any particular product or treatment. Welcome, Dr. Diodar, John, and Roz. It's such a pleasure having you on Soundbites today. Dr. Diodar, let's first frame our discussion today with what is axial spondyloarthritis and how is it relevant to psoriatic arthritis? What are the key features of both? Thank you so much. So axial spondyloarthritis and psoriatic arthritis belong to the same family of diseases called spondyloarthritis. And under the spondyloarthritis family, there is axial spondyloarthritis and peripheral spondyloarthritis. 
the peripheral spondyloarthritis is divided further into psoriatic arthritis, arthritis associated with conditions called Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis where you have inflammation in your gut. And then there is a condition called reactive arthritis. So they are cousins in this family of diseases. And so itis is inflammation, I-T-I-S, psoriatic arthritis, means there is inflammation of the joints. Spondyloarthritis is inflammation of the spondyle is spine. So spondyl and arthritis, inflammation of the spine, inflammation of the peripheral joints. Those are the key features. And of course, in psoriatic arthritis, people have skin disease that we call psoriasis. And about 10% of patients with axial spondyloarthritis will also have skin disease. There are other features like inflammation in the eye, inflammation in the gut. So we generally put them into the same family because they have very similar features to each other, which help providers to diagnose them. Thank you, Dr. Jadar, for that explanation. It was so helpful. So, John and Roz, we just heard Dr. Deodar describe axial spondyloarthritis versus psoriatic arthritis. You both live with spondyloarthritis, and John, you also have psoriatic arthritis. Where did your journey with spondyloarthritis and psoriatic arthritis begin? Can you please speak to us about your symptoms and what it means to live with spondyloarthritis and psoriatic arthritis? John, let's start with you. So, thank you very much for inviting me. My journey really began in, in 1964 when I was diagnosed with psoriasis. And then 12 years later, I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis. Uh, when I went to a VA hospital, it took about three to four hours of x-rays to determine this. And the report that I received told me the doctors had found ankylosing spondylitis and cervical spondylitis. And to tell you the truth, I didn't know what they were because at that time in 1976, there was no internet. There's nobody to ask. There's no way to look it up. It was very difficult. The symptoms that I was experiencing with psoriatic arthritis were um, my nails were pitted. I had what they call sausage digits for toes on my feet. And my joints, elbows, knees uh, were sore at times. There wasn't really much I could do other than take Tylenol. I didn't understand the complexity of psoriatic arthritis. Well, the only way I could understand it was to go and ask a rheumatologist, which I did. Well, thank goodness you sought help from a rheumatologist. Roz, how about you? Where did your journey begin? I was actually 12 when I was diagnosed with inflammation in my lungs, and I developed persistent neck and shoulder pain. And then just a few years later in high school, I started having unexplained chronic fatigue. And then over the next 30 years, I just kept developing symptom after symptom, chronic pain and inflammation in my back, what John talked about in all these different peripheral joints, my shoulders and elbows, wrists, thumbs, name a joint, pretty much I've had issues there. Later, I developed digestive issues as well as inflammation in my eyes. I have a strong family history of ankylosing spondylitis. I grew up with it because my father was fully fused and legally blind from years of just chronic uveitis. But I actually didn't get diagnosed until 2018 because I'm negative for the HLA-B27 gene, which I later learned is actually common in African-Americans with AS. But I was also going to the VA, John, so veteran power here. And they believe that if you were negative, that automatically meant you didn't have AS. And I think the second part of your question was 
was what it means to live with spondyloarthritis. I would say that my life with it, it's really bittersweet because on the one hand, I have this unpredictable body that's in pain most of the time. And so it hampers my ability to earn a living, to work full time and do a lot of the things that I used to enjoy doing. And I had a lot of trouble coping for a while because I had so many things going wrong and I also did not have a diagnosis. So it was thought that I was a hypochondriac and all these things. So I got counseling to help me deal with my new normal. And then once I got my diagnosis, I could kind of breathe free, but answered a lot of questions. And I grew up with a disabled father, but I never dreamed that I would be disabled too. But I was fortunate that because I grew up with him, I got to watch him and how he managed his pain. He was a tailor and he made clothes and he was really, really good with his hands. And as his eyes went, he just developed new hobbies. And so that's something that I do now. But so I look at it, you know, that on one hand, it's been really bitter with the symptoms, but on the other hand, it's made me really resilient. I've learned a lot about myself and I've met and worked with a lot of wonderful people that I wouldn't have otherwise if I didn't have this disease. Thank you, John and Roz, for sharing your journey about living with these diseases. While you've struggled, you've found ways to overcome the challenges, and that's really inspiring to hear. I look forward to hearing more about this from both of you. So, Dr. Deodar, how important is it for someone with spondyloarthritis and psoriatic arthritis to understand what a diagnosis of this disease means? We've just heard the stories from Roz and John, but what can someone do to help gain a better understanding? Yeah, so in fact, both of them articulated it very, very well. And as Ross said, that with the diagnosis, she was set free and she understood what is happening with her. And in case of John, he initially didn't understand the seriousness, the complexity. It is extraordinarily important for the patient to understand what the diagnosis is because that does affect several things. I mean, that affects several times before they had the diagnosis, they're kind of poo-pooed. And I mean, in case of Ross, oh, you're a woman. You don't, women don't get this thing. Oh, you're African-American. Well, no, no, they don't get this. And B27 negative, you don't have this. So all these unfortunate sort of concepts that providers have, and we are changing them with more and more education. We are finding that women can have this disease. B27 negative people can have this disease. From patient's point of view, having a diagnosis means a lot. Several times, they can in fact teach the providers that I've read that this is also called my painful eye because otherwise the patient might just go to the ophthalmologist because they have got red eye and for their backache they go to one doctor and the ophthalmologist may not even know that they have a condition like spondyloarthritis and the patient can tell them by the way i have been diagnosed with spondyloarthritis that will immediately tell the ophthalmologist to look specifically for uveitis patients are their best advocates and knowing the diagnosis makes a huge difference later on also, once they start learning about these things, they understand what is the importance of taking the drugs regularly, what to watch for, when to go to the doctor, when to get their blood tests repeated. More educated patient is a success from the patient's point of view and from the doctor's point of view. The more educated they are, the better outcome they will have. So diagnosis is extraordinarily important. And for them to understand that. I'll just add one more thing. You ask me, what can they do to help gain better understanding? And I send my patients to National Psoriasis Foundation if they've got psoriatic arthritis, Spondyloarthritis Association of America, SAA. Patient organizations 
are wonderful in educating the patients about their disease. Patients find those empowering because they meet other people who have similar diseases. They get unbiased opinion. They get unbiased education. And those websites are much better rather than going to some other websites or getting into buying unnecessary medication over the counter for treating their backache or their skin rash. Or social media. Or social media. Absolutely. I mean, you may be lucky and you might get into the right place on the social media, but many a times you might just get into a wrong place and then that will just take you in a totally wrong direction. That's why a reputable patient organization and for the diseases that we are discussing today, National Psoriasis Foundation and Spondylitis Association of America are absolutely excellent. They will give you great education and support. And I send my patients to these organizations. Thank you, Dr. Dadar, for your support and for such great advice. John and Roz, I'm curious, what did you do to help gain a better understanding of your disease and how do you stay informed? Roz, can we start with you? Well, I get my information basically in two ways, and it's what Dr. Dadar mentioned. Number one is from trusted sources, things I went to immediately, organizations that are dedicated to ankylosing spondylitis and similar diseases. And there are some really great organizations like the Spondylitis Association and Creaky Joints that I can go to and find pretty much any information I'm looking for. But I've also gone to medical journals. That's how I learned about the B27 gene. I actually found information in a medical journal and took it to my doctor and he wasn't aware of it. So I usually try to do that on my own. And then as far as another source for me, it's social media. I get so much helpful information and support from other patients. And there are so many groups available online. The one thing that I found is that it's not one size fits all. There are groups that I've been in that I felt like were not effective, that it was kind of like a pity party. And then there were other groups that I felt were better support and there was better information. But definitely that's something that's been really helpful for me to reach out to others who are going through this crazy thing that I'm going through too. Thank you, Roz. And John, I know you've taken information to share with your doctors too. Can you speak to what you do to stay informed? My main source of information has been the National Psoriasis Foundation. From time to time, I've gone on the web and looked up specific things or diseases or conditions I might have. And I'm, I'm always skeptical because I have to have two or three different sites say the same thing before I believe it. I need to have a believable source. I don't have a believable source, then I could be in a lot of trouble. And I've done oh, in the Psoriasis Foundation since 2006 mentoring, where I'll speak to other patients and support them in their journey when they were first diagnosed. The experiences that I've had with that have been wonderful because you don't teach the person, you learn from the person. And it's, it's been very informative, and I've had a great time doing this. And my rheumatologist and the, the dermatologist at the VA have been a good source of information. Thank you, John and Roz. These are all excellent resources. So, Dr. Diodar, before we talk about treatment options, can you please address the significance of the 2019 ACR, SAA, and Spartan treatment recommendations for axial spondylitis, along with GRAPA's updated treatment recommendations for psoriatic arthritis? What do treatment guidelines such as these mean for people with axial spondyarthritis and psoriatic arthritis? 
So I participated in development of both of these treatment guidelines, the ACR, SAA Spartan for axial spinal arthritis and the GRAPA's treatment recommendations as well. ACR has also come up with National Psoriasis Foundation, psoriatic arthritis treatment recommendations. Basically, the patients should be reassured that the medical community, rheumatologists, are very interested in finding out the best resources that there are and then putting those together to develop these treatment recommendations. I know how rigorous this process is. And there is a group of experts who do literature review and we go through several papers that have been published. Then there is a separate group of people who vote on them depending upon what was found in the literature review. Treatment recommendations to practicing rheumatologists show a roadmap. This is the best way you should proceed. Now, this is a general roadmap. The person sitting in front of you in the clinic is an individual. So you have to several times individualize the treatment. However, the roadmap that has been shown to you by treatment recommendations is extraordinarily important. They will tell you which drugs have been found to be effective, which drugs have found to be not effective, which drug is better than the other drug, what kind of precautions you take when you start a particular drug. So from patient's point of view, they should be reassured that these processes keep on happening and we keep on, in fact, updating our treatment recommendations as GRAPA treatment recommendations have been updated. And we recently started updating the treatment recommendations by the ACR for the axial spondyloarthritis as well. So this is a very positive development in the field of rheumatology that experts come together, put on the table what is the best known knowledge. One more thing, these things are also then publicized on the websites of National Psoriasis Foundation or Spondylitis Association of America. So the patients also know that there has been a new guideline come up and they can then take that to their rheumatologist and say, hey, these are the new recommendations. Are we going along with these recommendations? So this is another way of empowering the patients. It's so important to know. Thank you so much. So you mentioned how guidelines impact treatment choices. What other factors determine treatment choices for someone with psoriatic arthritis or spondyloarthritis? Yeah, so as I said, the treatment guidelines can tell you in generality what is the best available treatment for psoriatic arthritis and what are your steps? How do you go stepwise from one step to the other? In an individual patient, it's a important process of shared decision-making. And the shared decision-making involves to take into account the patient's preferences, their values, what they really would like, what they wouldn't like. Some people are risk averse. So what is their, and every drug has a risk. Not that I tell my patients there isn't anything which doesn't come without any risk. There are risks of everything. So how risk averse the patients are, and, and there are several other things that we individualize. I mean, their age, their sex, if it is a young female and then is pregnancy going to be in her near future? I mean, that will then depend on what medication I'm going to use in her compared to, say, an um, elderly male where I would be using a different medication. Comorbidities, extraordinarily important. I mean, comorbidities will change what medication I'm going to use. Past treatments, what have they taken before? And what has been the efficacy of that? And did they get any bad effects uh, because of that? Current treatments, I mean, are the drugs that I'm going to give, are they going to react with the other drugs that the patient is receiving for their other conditions? So 
current treatments, past treatments, where they are in their life, their sex, their age, their risk aversion status, what their values are. And lastly, and very importantly, unfortunately in the US, it's what their insurance is going to allow. And whether the insurance allows it or not, what is their out-of-pocket expense is unfortunately something that we in daily practice take into account when we are deciding what treatment choices are the best. And these are the kind of boundaries in which we work and individualize the treatment for psoriatic arthritis as well as for axial spondyloarthritis. It's so true. Thank you, Dr. Diodar. John and Roz, when you were first diagnosed, what treatments did you initially use? Roz, let's start with you. Well, I was just diagnosed four years ago, and my rheumatologist immediately put me on biologics because I'd had symptoms for nearly 30 years with visible damage, and I haven't tried anything new since. And John, what were some of your first treatments? Well, one of the things that happened to me, it wasn't a treatment. It was a decision. Three years after I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, I had bronchitis. And the doctor said to me, you want bronchitis again next year? keep smoking. I came home and I stopped smoking. And later on, I found out that smoking aggravated psoriatic arthritis. And that probably was the best thing I did for myself out of an actual medical treatment. I tried to have liver biopsy in the 90s, see if I could go on methotrexate. And it came back that I couldn't. So I didn't go on methotrexate. It wasn't until 2005 that the VA finally was allowed to use biologics. And this was more for the treatment of psoriasis, but it also helped with my psoriatic arthritis. So I started in 2005, started on one biologic. In 45 days, I was completely cured by psoriasis. And I could see and feel the difference in no progression of the, the psoriatic arthritis. I had to deal with it. And I did for the rest of my life. I had to make adjustments, adapt to different things, so I just keep moving forward and not worry about the past. And we're so glad that you do. You've had quite the treatment journey. So thank you for sharing that with us, John. Dr. Diodar, what treatments are initially recommended for someone who's newly diagnosed with active psoriatic arthritis or spondyloarthritis? And how do you know if they are effective? What are the expectations regarding control of the disease? So let me answer the second question first. How do we decide about the disease is controlled or not, whatever treatment we start? And I want to make it simple. I mean, <clears throat> you know what happens when you go to see the doctor. They ask you questions. How are you doing, John? How are you doing, Roz? And then they say, oh, I'm doing fine. So that is symptoms. Symptoms is what the patient tells you. I mean, the doctor may specifically ask, how's your pain? How much is your fatigue? Do you wake up in the middle of the night? And et cetera, et cetera. Symptoms is what the patient tells the doctors. Next comes the physical examination, and that is the science. Signs are what the doctor finds on examining the patient because the patient might have forgotten. John might have forgotten that he has got a swollen knee or he may not forget. But we find, oh, you also have a swollen knee. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, but that is because of, you know, I went on a hike or whatever. And that's why it is swollen. But science is what you find when you examine the patient. Symptoms is what the patient tells you. So symptoms, signs, and then you send the patient to the lab because you are also looking at some lab tests and also imaging. The lab test and the imaging gives you the whole picture whether your treatment has been successful or not. Now, more recently, we have made this a little bit more streamlined and we have now tools that we expect rheumatologists to use into their daily practice. 
rather than just asking how are you doing and patients saying I'm fine because you know they don't want to say I'm not doing well because patients are very respectful. You specifically go through each and everything. So say for psoriatic arthritis, there is a tool called MDA, minimal disease activity. MDA is basically there are seven different items about their joints, about their skin, about their nails, about something called enthesis, which is where the ligaments, tendons insert into the bone, their function. And once you have this tool, as a doctor, I go through each and everything. How are your joints? How are your skin? How's your nails? How is your enthesis? And I also examine them. And for it to be called minimal disease activity, there are five out of those seven clinical items need to be under a certain level. Then we call this patient is in minimal disease activity. Very low disease activity, VLDA, is when all seven of them are completely well controlled. And then we say that this patient is in remission. And so there is an objective way we do this. And something similar we do also for axial spondyloarthritis. Now, in psoriatic arthritis, we can actually look at the joints. I can look at your hands and your knees and press upon them and see whether they're swollen or there is fluid or there is tenderness. With back, with the spine, it is difficult. Because if I press on somebody's spine and they say, ouch, ouch, that most of the people are tender on the spine, whether they have the disease or not. Tenderness on the spine is unfortunately universal. is because the way we sit and whether the way is just posture or whatever. It may or may not tell us whether there is a real inflammation there or not. So there are other objective things that we do, like sending them to the blood test to look for inflammatory markers, as we call them, inflammation in the blood. There are two tests, sedimentation rate, C-reactive protein. That gives us an idea. So there is a tool called ASDAS, Ankylosing Spondylitis Disease Activity Score. Part of that is you ask the patient, how much is your fatigue? How much is your pain? How much is your morning stiffness? And the last part is look at the blood test and we come to a number. And these tools, the MDA, the VLDA, the ASDAS, these are validated. In That means they have been shown to work over a longitudinal when you are following this patient regularly and you can see that the patient is getting better or not getting better. That's the way we expect patient to get better. And that's what we look for, control of the disease. That was your question. And the initial treatments, that was your another question. Initial treatments, we like to do things such as physical therapy, such as non-steroidals, before we jump on to biologics or some other medication. Thank you for that explanation. It's great to know how control of the disease is determined. So, John and Roz, you mentioned that you've been on biologics. Have you been on other treatments or tried other strategies over the years? What's been most helpful or difficult? John, let's start with you. I've tried physical therapy a number of different times. And when I was first diagnosed, it didn't seem to help. It was just like two days a week and it just didn't seem like enough. So I got different sheets for exercises that I could do at home and I'd say stay loose. It was most important to me that it was explained is movement. If you sit still and do nothing, you're going to lock up. So it was movement, movement, movement. But I think the most important was the biologic. When I went on the biologic, it seemed to help a lot more than what doing absolutely nothing. And I can understand that. Definitely. And Roz, how about you? Well, I mean, because over the course of 30 years, I had all these different symptoms and issues internally and then with joints and my back. What kind of worked for me the most were things that I could do at home 
And so I have a huge collection of braces, ace wraps, and things I can put on my body, sprays and creams and things to help with muscle pain. And then what John mentioned about movement, exercise is always key. I stretch every morning before I even get out of bed. And I've done that for I don't even know how many years. I try to walk as much as I can whenever I can and then do other things like TENS units. Those have been really helpful because those are things I can do whether I can see a doctor or not. Manipulation has been really helpful. I get regular massages and I found that that really helps because when I initially started having really bad back problems, and this was decades before I got diagnosed and they helped right away. And then I've been on too many medications to count. Like I mentioned, I'm on the biologic. I was on others before. This is my third one and it's very helpful and it keeps me from having to take so many other things. Pretty much a lightweight when it comes to medication. There are side effects, I'm gonna get them. And then unfortunately I've had a lot of painful procedures. I've had so many cortisone and spinal injections, I can't even count them. And I had 10 joint surgeries. I just recently had my knee replacement two weeks ago. And so I've had to deal with that. But all of those treatments, they really help some temporarily, which you know I'll take it. And again, like John said, movement, movement, movement. So it's a constant battle, but this variety of things that I've used over the years has definitely helped me. It's definitely a battle, but I'm so glad you found treatments that have worked for you. Thank you for sharing your treatment stories. So John and Roz, did you have any required screenings for the treatments you've used? Any cautions? Roz, let's hear from you first. For the biologics, you have to be screened for TB and have all these other blood tests done. And then in addition, I have to get blood work every three months while I'm taking them. I don't know if that's the standard or if that's just my rheumatologist protocol. And then all of the meds that I've been on over the years, they all come with cautions and the side effects and then potential interactions with other meds. I've also been on meds that went off the market they'll put me on something. And then sometimes things will pop up where it's not healthy for anyone to take it. So it is pretty scary because you have to have something for kind of that breakthrough pain. Even if your biologic is working really well, something can happen. You can have a flare and you may need something to help you through it. So I guess it's good for them to always be checking your blood work to make sure that nothing is going on. And John, how about you? Well, I go back to 2000. Um, I was going on a medication. I got outside of the VA. It was a vitamin A derivative. And, and the doctor gave me two choices. You can take the medication, but you have to stop drinking. Or you can drink and not take the medication. So I decided to stop drinking because the alcohol with the vitamin A was only going to possibly have a bad outcome on my liver. So that's one screening I went through. But and I don't know how much it affected psoriatic arthritis. So I went, again, cold turkey, quit drinking. I haven't had a drink since 2000. The other screenings, like Ross said, was for when you're taking the biologic is the yearly screening for TB. And now they've changed that over the years. I don't have to get it every year. I did do it this year and they screened for it and everything has been negative. It's just this constant look at different things so that you keep yourself healthy. Thank you, John Ross, for that information about screenings. So, Dr. Deodar, how effective are TNF inhibitors compared to IL-17 or IL-23 inhibitors in the treatment of psoriatic arthritis or axial spondyloarthritis? Do treatments lose their effectiveness over time? Yes, 
these are important questions. First of all, I want to congratulate Ross and John. They are so well educated about this. I'm kind of enthralled as to how knowledgeable they are. I wish all my patients were as knowledgeable as they are. Thank you for all that. I completely agree with uh, what you went through and how much amazing knowledge you have about your disease. And this goes back to the first question that we had about what it means to have the diagnosis. So this is knowledge is power and both of you have done so well. Thank you for telling us your story. So to get back to the question, how effective are TNF inhibitors compared to these other two? These are all biologics and they're extraordinarily effective. And both our pros and John have said how effective they are, these drugs, compared to what they used to be on before. Biologics are very effective. Specifically, TNF inhibitors are equally effective as IL-17 inhibitors or IL-23 inhibitors when it comes to musculoskeletal system from joint aches and pains. IL-23 inhibitors, IL-17 inhibitors, and TNF inhibitors are equal when it comes to peripheral joint involvement. Interestingly, on the axial skeleton, the spine, IL-23 inhibitors do not work in ankylosing spondylitis. So it is very odd, and it is still a big mystery for rheumatologists. Why are the axial skeleton joints in the spine different than the peripheral joints in my hands, in my knees, in my ankles and elbows and shoulders? These are somehow different. IL-23 inhibitors in ankylosing spondylitis do not work. IL-17, whereas IL-23 inhibitors work beautifully on the peripheral joints, and these are all equal. TNF inhibitors, IL-17, IL-23 are equal. Another interesting point, when it comes to skin, IL-17 and IL-23 inhibitors are way better than TNF inhibitors. There are head-to-head -head studies to show that IL-17 and IL-23 inhibitors are more efficacious than TNF inhibitors on skin, on joints they are equally good. And yes, these treatments do lose their effectiveness over time. I won't go into the details of that. Sometimes we think that your body gets used to it. These are foreign proteins that we are injecting into the body. And your immune system recognizes this foreign protein being injected. And in a way, you try to reject this foreign protein over time. You make antibodies to these drugs. And then they become less and less effective. So yes, over time, they may lose effectiveness and then doctors have to try different medication. And John Roz, you mentioned this a little bit, but what has been the most effective treatment you've tried? Roz? I know for me, it is the biologic. When I took it, I had relief from my fatigue within days and then also decreased back pain. I think I'm always at a certain level of discomfort with my back. It's rare for me to, to not have any pain, but it, it definitely has helped so much. And one thing to Dr. Deodar's point is I think the other biologics that I was on initially, I think they were in the first category, but now the one I'm on, I think is IL-17. And I noticed a difference when I took that one, that it helped with all of my peripheral pain issues because I have it in my shoulder, my elbow, and obviously in my knees, but I also have really bad issues with my feet, with heel pain and plantar fasciitis. I have a lot of issues in my feet. And I noticed that I got a lot of relief on that drug as opposed to the other biologics. And John, what's been most effective for you? The biologics exercise movement, they've been the most effective. I've had trouble with some others and I've not gotten into uh, the IL-17 because it seems like the biologic I'm taking is effective as it needs to be. I continually move. If I stop, 
I lock up. I have to keep going where I am. I keep doing things. It's too much of life to do if you're sitting around and you, and you let it go by. Movement, movement, movement. Don't give up on anything. Just continue, go forward. If you can't go forward as fast as you were in the beginning, still go forward. We still go out to eat every Saturday night. Don't give these things up because you're giving up on life. That's certainly a very important message. Thank you, John and Roz. Dr. Diodar, when are JAK inhibitors or target synthetic DMARDs, another form of treatment, used? And what's the evidence supporting their use? Yes, so the synthetic targeted disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, there are two classes. One is the JAK inhibitors that you mentioned, and the other one is apremilast, which is a PDE4 inhibitor. I won't go into the details of what PDE4 is. But apremilast is also a targeted synthetic demand, and we use that early on in the disease. This is an oral pill. Jack inhibitors are also oral pills. So the targeted synthetic demands are oral pills as opposed to biologics, which are all injectable or given intravenously. So that's the first difference. The Jack inhibitors especially are extraordinarily effective in controlling the inflammation in the peripheral joints as well as in the axial skeleton, as I said, there are drugs which may or may not work on both sides. Jack inhibitors work on both sides, and they're also good for the skin. More recently, there has been some warnings from the FDA about Jack inhibitors. Compared to TNF inhibitors, Jack inhibitors slightly increase the risk of heart attacks and some cancers. Based on that, FDA has given them a black box warning, which is also something that I tell my patients before starting them on JAK inhibitors. This is the shared decision-making that I spoke about earlier. So currently, the JAK inhibitors are used after TNF inhibitors have been used and they have been ineffective. That is the time when we use JAK inhibitors. And the question was, what's the evidence supporting their use? There have been phase three studies in JAK inhibitors in psoriatic arthritis, in axial spondyloarthritis, and these phase three studies have shown definite efficacy. And Dr. Jidar, should someone expect the use of a combination therapy to achieve minimal or very low disease activity? Yes, so the combination therapy is an interesting idea. Combination therapy works very well in rheumatoid arthritis. In psoriatic arthritis and in axial spondyloarthritis, the combination therapy generally is a biologic with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. In psoriatic arthritis, there was a study done combining TNF inhibitors with methotrexate, and that did not prove to be better than TNF inhibitor alone. So we don't really use that. We have used apremilast with biologics, and that combination therapy has been better than biologics alone, and that would help attaining minimal or very low disease activity. In axial spondyloarthritis, we do not have any evidence that combination therapy between different drugs work. And we generally do not combine two biologics because the immunosuppression with two biologics is quite excessive and we will increase the risk with infection, et cetera. So we don't combine biologics. That's super interesting. Thank you, Dr. Diodar. So John Roz, how important do you feel it is to have new treatments being developed? Do you have a sense of hope for the future? John, would you like to go first? I think it's very important. As a matter of fact, the, the one thing that I would love to see is a, not just more treatments, but a cure for the disease. If you don't have hope, 
you don't have anything. You kind of lose perspective of what the disease can do to you. And I tell the people that I talk to, be positive about what you're doing. If you keep the positivity within your life, it's very important. These new treatments that are being developed are extremely important and will be very helpful in the future. We may not see them, but people in the future will not have to suffer as much as we did over the years. And I think that's the most important factor. Thank you, John. Roz, do you have anything you'd like to add to John's comments? Just a little, but John is definitely a brother from another mother because that's what first came to mind for me is that, you know, the treatments are fantastic, but really hoping that they lead to a a cure, all of this research. But for me, it brings me back to my family because my father had his first symptom in 1942. He got uveitis then. And it wasn't until 77 that the VA connected the fusing of his spine with his eyes and diagnosed him with ankylosing spondylitis. And he never had any treatment. He never had a chance. So he ended up being in a wheelchair by the end of his life. And I know that his life would have been completely different, even if just some of the older treatments had been available, let alone the things that are available now. So I can only imagine if God forbid one of my kids or grandkids ends up having it, that there'll be things available that be nice to just take a pill. That would be a start. And then a cure would definitely be great. Not even great. There's not even a word for cure. I don't think a word has been made. <laughs> I don't think a word exists for how wonderful that would be to, to not have to have your quality of life diminished in this way. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So, Dr. Dudar, you might be able to shed some light on what the future holds. What do you feel are the most exciting developments for psoriatic arthritis and axial spondyl arthritis? What's recently been approved or is currently in development? So the good news is that there is a lot of interest in the rheumatology world about psoriatic arthritis, axial spondyloarthritis. And in fact, we had absolutely no treatment for axial spondyloarthritis till the biologics came. Psoriatic arthritis, drugs like methotrexate, sulfasalazine, these sort of older drugs used to work. Axial spondyloarthritis, unfortunately, had nothing till the TNF inhibitors for the first time showed great promise. And I Completely agree with John and uh, Ross that cure would be fantastic and it will be fantastic for us as well. We currently use the word remission. Unfortunately, cure is not in our vocabulary in rheumatology and that's not because of we are not trying. We are, of course, trying. Early aggressive treatment can possibly give people drug-free remission. Drug-free remission is closest as you come to cure as it is, that you're not taking any drug, but you're still in remission. Is that cure? I mean, we would like to think so, but at least we can say it is drug-free remission. And we have seen that happen if you treat patients early, catching them early and aggressively treating them, and then withdrawing the treatment and seeing how long does the remission last. Anyhow, that was about the cure part. But your question was, what is there in the pipeline? And there are several, or what is kind of being researched. There is a lot of work going on about gut microbiome. We didn't talk about that. This is the bugs in our gastrointestinal tract. I mean, we know how do these diseases start. Partly it is genetic and partly it is environmental. And we are finding that there may be some clues of what kind of germs we carry in our gut, what kind of bugs we carry in our gut, and whether changing those will help putting people into remission. The first trial failed, but then most of the time medicine goes like that. The initial trials fail and then you tweak something and then it succeeds, etc. But that's a very important and exciting field looking at 
gut microbiome and differences in psoriatic arthritis compared to people who don't have that or people with axial spondyloarthritis compared to people who don't have that and normalizing that that's a completely different field of research as far as medication are concerned there are two or three medications which are in development some of them are early some of them are in late there is a drug called tick2 inhibitor number 2 this is going to be a pill this is similar to jack inhibitor but not the side effects of jack inhibitors and that drug has completed phase 2 studies it's called ducravastitinib it's a pretty big name but that drug is uh, phase 3 studies are being currently done for psoriatic arthritis that did get approved for psoriasis completely new drug there is a map kinase inhibitor we are doing the studies on this phase 2 studies so that's earlier development in axial spondyloarthritis and more recently there are the drug which is closest to get approval is a drug called bimekizumab bimekizumab blocks IL-17A and IL-17F two different cytokines or chemicals being blocked and that drug probably will get approval very very soon we have completed the trials that looks very very effective in axial spondyloarthritis psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis so lots of new treatments lots of new ideas uh, where the research is going and yes we definitely hopefully will be able to get at least drug free remission and ultimately a cure thank you dr dirar for providing such a message of hope it's good to see all the new developments and where research is going John Ross, what words of wisdom would you like to pass along to others who have psoriatic arthritis or axial spondyloarthritis? First thing I would pass on to anybody is if you have psoriasis, go to your rheumatologist and have them do a diagnosis whether you have psoriatic arthritis or not. I know it's only what one third of the patients are diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, but it's important to know it from the very beginning. From 1976 to 2005 these 29 years they were the worst years that, that I lived and if I had had an early diagnosis I'm sure the outcome would have been different much different so don't be afraid to see another doctor if you're not happy with the doctor you're with and you're not getting cooperation go to another doctor don't be satisfied with the first answer you get if you're not in consensus to what you're being told do something else but definitely see a doctor and then if you have psoriatic arthritis don't give up keep moving wise words john being proactive is so important thank you and ross how about you sure really important for me was really grieve your old self because your body will be different i mean you could hope for the drug free remission if you got diagnosed really early and you're younger but if quite a few years have gone by and i think that's the norm not the exception when that happens really grieve your old self and just try to reach a point of acceptance this is the new normal your life is going to be unpredictable with this disease and like john mentioned move 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 the mantra is motion is lotion do whatever you can when my back would go out i just thought it went out like other people's except started to notice that my back always goes out if you find that realizing that your life is now different and that you have new limitations if it feels overwhelming get professional help it really helped me and i noticed that now when i have a new condition that throws me for a loop but even then it's never like it was initially before i came to accept that this is the way my life was going to be so definitely learn how to cope with the way that your life is going to be and learn as much as 
you can, like the doctor said, so that you can advocate for yourself. What perfect messages to end our podcast today. Dr. Didar, do you have any final message you'd like to share with our listeners today? Yes. And first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me to participate in this. And again, I want to repeat what I said earlier. I am very encouraged and I'm impressed how Roz and John have handled their disease over the years. And the message is, it's a new reality. You have to accept it. You have to keep moving. You need to get as much education as you can. You can be your own best advocate. And the more knowledge you get, it's power. And not only that, you actually can educate or you can at least give suggestions to your provider. Don't be frightened to ask questions. Don't be frightened to change providers. And not everybody will sort of get along. So, you know, find somebody that you really trust in and stay abreast. The knowledge, medical knowledge keeps on changing. And that's what medical science is. Science learns from our mistakes and we go on going forward and forward. And the more you learn and keep on learning with your provider, that's always good. And have hope. There is definitely bright future. And certainly our children and our grandchildren, if they unfortunately to get this disease, will do much better than what we are doing because of the progress that medical science is making. So always have the hope and keep going forward as John and Roz have. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Diodar, John and Roz, for sharing your insights about current and upcoming treatment options for psoriatic arthritis and axial spondyl arthritis. We're so glad you joined us for today's discussion. You really provided a message of hope for our listeners. Learn more about treatments for spondyl arthritis through the Spondylitis Association of America at spondylitis.org and psoriatic arthritis from the National Psoriasis Foundation at psoriasis.org. And join us in November for our last CAPES episode about the impacts and benefits of lifestyle changes. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Ghana, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.